Welcome to Capital Conversations, the ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. I'm your host, Chelsea Soplick. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. My hope for this podcast is that these conversations would foster a new way for Christians to engage in the public square. This week on Capital Conversations, my guest is Herbie Newell, and we are going to be discussing National Adoption Month, how the church can care for vulnerable children and their families, and how we can begin preparing for a potential post-Roe world. Herbie is the president and executive director of Lifeline Children's Services and its ministry arms, including Unadopted, Crossings, and Lifeline Village. Herbie holds a master's degree in accounting from Stanford University. He joined the Lifeline staff in 2003 as the executive director. From 2004 to 2008, he served as the president of the Alabama Adoption Coalition. Herbie was chosen as a Hague Intercountry Adoption Evaluator and Team Leader by the Council of Accreditation and serves currently in that capacity as well. Under Herbie's leadership, Lifeline has increased the international outreach to 23 countries, helped Lifeline attain membership in the Evangelical Council on Financial Accountability, and led the creation of foster care ministries. Having witnessed the plight of older orphans on many trips overseas, Herbie's burden for the fatherless was a catalyst for starting Unadopted during 2009. He worked with WAKM Companies, LLC, a prominent accounting firm for many years as an independent auditor before being led to Lifeline. He and his wife, Ashley, live in Birmingham, Alabama, and are parents to son, Caleb, and daughters, Adeline and Emily. Today, my Capital Conversations guest is Herbie Newell. Herbie is with Lifeline Children's Services, and we were just talking before we hit record. Herbie, you are our first guest back in the studio. So, Herbie, welcome to Capital Conversations. What a privilege. Like, who would have known that I would be the first in-studio guest? And I think this is my first time back to D.C., and the last time I was here on Capital Conversations, that was in D.C. pre-pandemic. So, what great bookends, hopefully, it. to this pandemic. <laughs> yes, hopefully this is the wrapping up of the pandemic. Um, you and I, this morning, were at the Supreme Court, um, and we're going to be getting into um, some pro-life topics near the end of our podcast, but we are also recording this podcast at the beginning of November, which is National Adoption Month, and you and I both have a lot of connections to this uh, topic. Putting on my personal hat, my husband and I are in the adoption right now process right now with Lifeline, so we are just... Huge fans of your work personally, but also uh, professionally. You're great partners with us and um, a lot of the work we do at URLC, um, caring for preborn babies, their mothers in vulnerable communities, which we will dig into throughout this interview. But can you just begin talking to us about your work at Lifeline? Um, what is Lifeline? What kind of programs do you uh, do at Lifeline? And how did you get involved in that work? Yeah. So let's start with how I got involved. You know, I got involved, actually, even as we talk about standing outside the Supreme Court and this Texas heartbeat bill, you know, as I was standing outside the Supreme Court, as I do a lot of times when I'm in these pro-life issues, I wish my wife could have been with me because that's the way I got into this. Mm. You know, most people, when they're going to college, kind of have an idea of what they want to do. Some 
really know what they want to do. And my wife knew that she wanted to be the director of a crisis pregnancy center. Everything she did during college was to get herself ready to be a director of a crisis pregnancy center. So when we got married, she fulfilled her calling and her dream. And that was really what pulled us into this ministry. And I remember being around the dining room table pre-kids and we would be talking about our days, and she would talk about these women that would come into the center. And, you know, to be honest, Chelsea, it even challenged the core fabric of our pro-life ethic, because there were literally ladies who had nowhere to turn, nowhere to go. And we would look at each other, kind of like, what should we do? We would pray for these women, but we really were like, if the church doesn't step up, What's going to happen with these women? And Lord willing, they'll give birth to a baby. What's going to happen to these children? And so I think through that wrestling, the Lord really just led us to say, as a family, what are we supposed to do? And around that time, we learned that my predecessor was leaving at Lifeline. And we just started praying together. And interestingly enough, it was on Good Friday. I was supposed Mm -hmm. to have an answer for them by the end of the day. And I asked for an extension to the end of the night. And... uh, At that Good Friday service, the pastor was preaching out of Lamentations 3. And one of the things that I think really was clicking on us, I was an accountant at the time, I'd have to give up this career to go into nonprofit work and ministry work. And, you know, what was that going to look like for us as we grew a family? And out of Lamentations 3, you know, he read, it is good for a man to bear much in his youth. You know, great are the Lord's mercies every morning. And it's funny because in my time with the Lord, I had been studying in Lamentations chapter 3 and really meditating over that verse. And I know the Good Friday service was exquisite, but at that moment, like it really was like the Lord was talking to me and saying, your life is not yours, Mm. and I've given this passion to you guys for the unborn and for these women. You need to go and you need to seek me in it. And so we started at Lifeline. And really, the thing I love about Lifeline is it answered all those prayers about what do we do for these women now. Mm -hmm. So at Lifeline, we walk alongside of young women going through crisis pregnancies or unplanned pregnancies. You know, we disciple them in the way that they should go. We help them get connected to resources through the church. You know, another great ERLC partner and partner of Lifeline, Embrace Grace, who really is trying to get churches to care for single moms and, and these women partnering with other organizations, but really our most important partner is the church. How do we get the church engaged to care for these women? For those women who choose adoption, we want to provide missional Christian families for them. We want to care for them in that way. And and then two, you know, not just on the domestic side, but internationally, we provide international adoption services, just like you and Michael are going through in India, and as well, global orphan care to care for orphans that are aging out. And then back at home, foster parents, we equip foster parents and really work on family reunification to get kids back into their biological families where it's good, necessary, and healthy. Uh, It sounds like you were quite busy there at Lifeline. Um, So you've been there 15 years, right? Yeah, just a little over. Okay, that's a long time. What are some of the kind of big shifts in child welfare that you've seen over the past 15 years? Wow. So really, I would say from our vantage point, we've seen a lot happen in child welfare. But knowing our audience, the thing that has really changed the most, I would say, is the local church engagement. Mm. So I feel like when I started to go into a local church and talk anything about orphan care, adoption, or foster care, you're almost labeled as a social justice crusader. 
And, you know, I guess what I would try to help these pastors see is I believe that it's not social justice, it's gospel-driven justice. We're called into it by the Great Commission to go and, and take the gospel, and we're called into it as well by the Great Commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so we've got these two commandments that we're drawn in to do justice, and actually by doing justice, we're showing both the gospel and we're making the gospel known. And, you know, shortly thereon, which is, I think, very interesting, is the local church seemed to get behind international adoption and international orphan care even before they got behind domestic issues and, and the foster care program. Why, so, why is that, do you think? You know, I think it's always easier to believe that someone else has a problem and we don't. It's a lot easier to see someone else's you know, issues and to see the, the mass issue away from you than it is to look right in your own neighborhood. And I think that's what the church did. Uh, And and I think some of it was good, right? The church was getting more missional, thinking more globally. How do we take the gospel to the ends of the nations? And as we're there, wow, they're orphaned and vulnerable children. Let's help them. But I also think it was just a blind eye to the foster care system. I think we also had labeled the foster care system as, well, that's where bad people lose their kids. Without realizing that these quote-unquote bad people that we were labeling as bad people were the very women that we were standing up and asking them to choose life. And because we'd asked them to choose life and then not walk them through their pregnancy, and then on the other side of the postpartum ward, walked life with them and helped them, they were losing their kids to foster care system. Mm -hmm. And that has been, I would say, one of the most joyful things is I believe seeing so many churches now wake up to domestic issues that are right here and realize that whole life pro-life means that we're going to walk with these ladies and these children postpartum, not just with the baby in the womb. And so that's just been something that I think is has been really, really uh, exciting. On a, just a child welfare overall, we've certainly seen international issues become a whole lot harder not to decry our State Department or anything on our side. Uh, I know they do the best job at times they can, but I have seen their posture change from advocacy and diplomacy to really trying to fix issues and being much more reactionary. And so even as we're sitting here just at Lifeline, we have 100 children waiting on their families in China. And it's been discouraging to see our government really not push that envelope very much. 15-plus years ago when I started, our State Department was in China talking to them about orphans and children's issues almost two or three times a year. Mm. Uh, I can't remember the last time we took a state visit to talk about children's issues in China. It's been five or six years our State Department has done that. So you see less advocacy and diplomacy and more reactionary. And then I think on the, the side here, unfortunately, we've gotten so interested in this word equality and what does that mean that we've lost sight of really what the kids need. Mm -hmm. And so it's all about who has access to the kids as opposed to looking at what's best for kids in foster care. And so I just pray that as a church we'll step up and we will really start to take care of these kids so that, that they won't be lacking of resources. And as the church would say, we're here, we're ready, and we don't have to talk about anything else because we're ready to take these kids. That's a really, really helpful overview, and I'm I'm glad you highlighted the uh, waiting families with China. I have several close friends who are waiting, and it's mm. just it's gut wrenching, mm. truly, to try to put yourself in their shoes and and knowing who your kids are and not being able to go. So I'm glad you brought up that and that whole overview. It was really helpful. Um, so I'm going to zoom in 
a little bit. Uh, like we were saying at the beginning, we are hopefully on the, the end of COVID. We're recording this in D.C. where we still have mask mandates and, and all of that fun stuff. But how have you seen the COVID-19 pandemic kind of impact vulnerable populations? Um, so kids who have either lost parents and, and family members, both domestically and abroad. Yeah. So I think on the domestic side, it's been a delayed effect. So what we saw is the number one reporter for violence or neglect to children are school teachers or, mm. you know, your schools. So they're the ones, guidance counselors, teachers that notice, hey, something's not wrong with little Johnny or little Sarah. And because kids weren't going to school, there were actually less kids that were being referred to foster care. So in some regards, you could be rocked to sleep believing, oh, hey, this is magically great, fix yeah. our problems. The other thing that you had is while there were families that were losing their jobs with all the stimulus money that was coming in, it also masked the problems because mm-hmm. moms, dads that didn't have the ability to take care of their kids now had stimulus money. And even now with the child tax credit that's mm-hmm. coming before taxes, you've got a lot of families that are benefiting from that. When school has started to go back in session, what you realized is, wow, there were a lot of kids that were mm-hmm. in need. Unfortunately, some of those kids were really bad off by the time school started opening back up. And you know, still in some parts of our country, schools haven't opened back up. And so I certainly don't want to be you know, a downer, but I think as a believers, we really need to be praying for those kids where mm-hmm. schools haven't opened back up because there's probably stuff that's happening that we yeah. can't see right now. Yeah. But what we've seen is just a flurry of kids coming into the system uh, since schools have opened back up and and you're seeing less stimulus money and less opportunities. So domestically, certainly it, it has affected children. You also have seen education. You know, most of our kids are in foster care. They're in foster care because they've gone through either mild or severe trauma, Mm -hmm. and the traumatized mind is not a mind that easily can sit behind a computer and take digital classes. And so you've seen a lot of our kids slide back on education, and so it's really affected that. And it also means that now families that are fostering, a lot of these kids that are coming into care right now have had long time of, of trauma that's been unguarded, that's been unkept or unsupervised. And so kids are actually coming in with a lot more needs right now in our foster care system. And that certainly isn't to dissuade anyone from foster care. I hope instead it casts an urgency to say, especially to those empty nesters, Mm -hmm. right? We need seasoned parents that can come in and have the time and the bandwidth to love on these kids that need stability. Internationally, you've seen mass migration happen in countries like India, uh, where you and Michael are seeking to adopt. And you've seen, you know, families leave big cities to go back home because they were seeking just any way to take care of themselves. And what's happened is it's left kids behind. And so India, we don't even have the numbers, but we believe that the orphan population has grown mm. immensely. And now because of disbursement of families everywhere and as as massive as a country and as massive amount of people they have, it's really difficult to really even be able to find and put those families back together. So there's there's a glow, growing need. Like we talked about with China, you know, even just to put it in perspective, there are families that, by God's grace, and this is kind of a good China story, uh, it starts with sad but ends with good. We have families that were adopting special needs kids that desperately needed surgeries, that desperately needed medical care. And 
we've been advocating since the very beginning of COVID, really January, uh, when a friend of ERLC and friend of Lifeline Scott James called me and said, don't send anybody to Wuhan, China. But we've seen that these kids needed medical care and the orphanages weren't doing that. We've advocated, and there are actually some local uh, families who would be brothers and sisters of ours who have been able to actually get these kids the medical wow. care, some of them. But we still have kids with Down syndrome, with CP, that aren't getting the therapies they need, and now they've been waiting almost two years. And so China, I would just say we really need to pray for these children in China. Like I said, with Lifeline, we have over 100 now that are waiting for their families to come get them. And as excruciating as that is for the families, Equally, you've got these kids that may not even realize that someone's coming to get them, but what it means is it's longer and longer that they have to wait until someone does get them. And then really in every other country in the world, you've seen, especially on the adoption side, you've seen the the peaks and the valleys, the open-close, open-close nature of every country as all these variants hit at different times and as every government reacts. And then last, I'll end on a very, very positive note. One of the most encouraging things about COVID is we have seen the global church mm-hmm. rise up to care for orphans and vulnerable children in ways that we really hadn't seen. And honestly, Chelsea, like as a, as a ministry and as an organization, our vision had always been that the global church would rise up, and we've seen them do it incrementally. But all of a sudden, when travel was restricted, when they realized our brothers and sisters from the West can't come, they really started to step up. Mm. And in Colombia, we've seen over 25 Christian families adopt or foster over the last 20 months. Uh, And there are more that are ready to step up. In Costa Rica, we saw 10 families adopt teenagers. And usually when you talk about globally, you see domestic adoption of infants, not teenagers. In Costa Rica, we saw 10 families adopt teenagers. We're seeing even families in Asia and other parts of the world that are saying, hey, we realize this is a global call. This was a call that Jesus Christ gave to every believer, and we want to step up and do something. And so I would say that's been an interesting, very encouraging byproduct to see the way that the church has responded to the needs of those around them. That's fantastic. And as you were um, highlighting the needs, especially from China, I was just thinking of um, one of our partners, uh, Show Hope, mm-hmm. and they give grants not only for families um, adopting domestically and internationally, but one of their new programs is to give grants to families to co- help cover the cost of, of the medical care mm-hmm. of um, some of those especially um, vulnerable kids, which I just love that ministry, love Emily, uh, love what they do, and wanted to to point uh, listeners to, to that resource as well. Um, so you just talked about um, many different places, both domestically and internationally where there is much need. So if our listeners are interested and feel called to either foster or adopt, what kind of first steps would you tell them um, to start taking? Yeah. So I know it's trite, but it's so true. And it really, it needs to start with with prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say prayer with open hands to say, okay, Lord, how do you want us to get engaged? And, you know, actually a friend of ours, Dr. Russell Moore, once said, which I thought was so apropos, not everyone is called to adopt, but everyone is called to do something. And I actually remember hearing him say that at Green Acres Baptist Church in mm-hmm. Tyler, Texas, uh, one time. And it's so true, right? We're all called to do something. We're not all called to adopt. We're not all called to foster. And so I think it's kind of putting a, a blank check before mm-hmm. the Lord and saying, okay, Lord, we don't know what we're supposed to do, but we want to know where you want us. And I think when, as his people, we come with that posture of, take me where you want to go 
it's yours. He will take you where you want to go. He'll open those doors. He'll take you down that path. Next step is really looking on the foster care side is in the way I like to look at it. And knowing most of your listeners probably are familiar with SBC polity, you got to decide in foster care, are you called to be with the IMB or are you called to be with the North American Mission Board? And the way I look at that is if you're called to the IMB foreign missions, then you call your local county. Mm-hmm. Know that it's going to be different language, a different culture. It's going to be hard. They may not always understand you, but I would say if you call your county, you have the opportunity to be not only a gospel witness to a child, but to a social worker and to a system. But that's not for everybody. If you're called to foster care, but you're more like, you know what? I am called to foster, but I need a little bit more familiarity. I would highlight all of our Baptist children's homes throughout all 50 states that can help. Uh, Certainly Lifeline would love to help. Uh, And there are a lot of great Christian organizations, but I would start first with your Baptist children's home. And also you can always call lifelinechild.org or call us at 205-967-0811, and we can help you as well. Uh, So Baptist children's homes, Lifeline. If you're called more to domestic adoption, or international adoption, I would just tell you, we would love to help. And as a ministry, we're not going to try to say you need to for sure use Lifeline, but we're going to help you think through, look at all the different options of what's available. Because a lot of really, when you look to it, I think there's two pieces, especially when you look internationally. Are you called to that country? We believe as missional Christians that we need to be called to a country uh, before we're called to a child, because that country is going to represent the nation and the culture your child comes from. And we believe you need to celebrate that culture. It needs to be a, become a part of your family. And so you need to ask the Lord, am I open to that being my mission field for the rest of my life? And so that's one of the things you put before the Lord. And then also, obviously, there's different needs in every country. And so how is your family best uh, situated to be able to meet those needs? And then domestic adoption, Certainly, there are a lot of great Christian organizations, uh, Christian ministries that, that facilitate domestic adoption. I would just encourage missional believers to know that if you're called to domestic adoption, again, as believers, we're never called to be transactional, but relational. Know that you need to be called to birth mother ministry. And so as you're adopting domestically, how can I love on a woman? Sometimes it may be through prayer. Sometimes it may be through a one-time face-to-face meeting. Sometimes it may be more. I'm writing letters and pictures and switching information. Sometimes it may be I have a relationship with this mom, but we need to realize we're called not because we're trying to meet our own need, but because we believe the Lord has called us to meet the need of both a child as well as a birth mother. And so Last I'd say is, if you have a ministry to foster care, then you need to do foster care. If you have ministry to birth mom, you need to do domestic adoption. If you've got a global ministry that you want to have, then international adoption is the right way to go. That is extremely, uh, extremely helpful. So going back to what you said at the beginning of that answer, that not everyone is uh, called to adopt or foster, what are some ways that Christians in the church can still get involved in caring for vulnerable kids if they don't necessarily feel called to adopt or foster? Yeah, and so just a couple of months ago, we were grateful to start a a pretty strategic partnership with the North American Mission Board where we're going to actually help get our SBC churches more information on how they can get engaged if they're not called to foster or adopt. Uh, Several of the things that we're looking at, one is hosting. And so that's a very short, maybe week to two week period where you can actually host a child whose mom just needs to get back on her feet. So we're trying to keep kids out of the system 
and we're actually helping moms. And so think of it as a big brother, big sister, a grandparent type program where you're bringing in this child and you're giving her that space and that relief. I think the second place is we need mentors for birth mothers. We need men and women who say, I will walk alongside of this mother. Lots of great programs within the church and other organizations are equipping the church. We mentioned Embrace Grace again, an Embrace Grace group. Also, we believe in family reconciliation and restoration. One of the things that Lifeline does is something called Families Count, Mm -hmm. and that is working with biological parents who desperately want to get their kids out of foster care. And so as a church, it's walking with these parents, it's loving on these parents, and it's teaching them the skills that they need and providing the relationships they need to be successfully reconciled with their kids. Another way we can do it is mentoring kids that are aging out of foster care. The number one statistic in foster care that just gets me every time is that today of all of our foster youth, right? So all of the foster kids that are in foster care now, about 450,000, over 80% of those kids are third generation foster child. I hadn't heard that. That means that their grandparents had some involvement in foster care. So if you think about that, it means that the true failure rate was on the back end of foster care. So we got them into foster care, but they aged out, and we're not doing a good job at helping these kids that are aging out. And so... Heritage Builders is a newer program that at Lifeline, which we call one of our church-based programs. And so if your church would learn, love to learn more about how to help these kids that are aging out, Heritage Builders is a system, much like another program that I mentioned, Families Count, that's really trying to help churches to think through strategically how are we going to care for these kids that are aging out of foster care. So it's systemic, right? And the, the hope that we have Yes, policy is important, but the gospel prevails. And the gospel is what changes hearts and minds and redirects lives so that we can start to see the systemic problem reverse. Could you say a little bit more um, of what it means for a youth to age out? What does their trajectory look like when they age out of foster care? Yeah, so most kids at this point come in and out of care on average three and a half times. So meaning that they've come out of biological family, gone back to biological family. Now, it might not be biological mom and dad. It could be a biological relative and then come back into care. And so a lot of those kids go back and forth, back and forth. By the time they reach age 18, uh, they can be emancipated from the foster care system. Usually those that are emancipated are those that have no hope of continuing education, have probably been behavioral, so they're not participating and they can be emancipated as an adult, and therefore they're out of the foster care system. So that's one way to age out. For those that are a little bit, uh, you know, have a more robust educational future, for instance, and that might not necessarily be college, it might be vocational school or something like that, and maybe a little bit more compliant, then they can actually receive services until their 25th birthday. So really, kids anywhere, it's Funny to call a 25-year-old a kid, but but foster youth and foster adults even from 18 to 25 are aging out of the foster care system. It's different for every child. And so what we really want to look at is the teens, right? Because even for that 25-year-old that might be compliant, gone to vocational school, stayed in the foster care system, even that child, their story when they're aging out starts when they're a teenager. And so we're really trying to help the church look back and say, how do we help these kids from 14 to 18? How do we help them make sure that education is a priority? They're getting the life skills that they need. They're getting the job skills and the job readiness that they need. And more importantly, 
they're having a community within the church. And so if our church can wrap around these youth, then we're there when they're aging out at 18 or 25. The high majority of these kids are not adopted, right? Typically when people are adopting, they're not thinking about adopting a teenager. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're thinking about adopting a child that's much younger. And so once kids are 14 to 18, the chances of them ever being adopted into a permanent family are just not very high. And so if they're not adopted and find permanence, they've already had their parental rights terminated from their parents. They're in this no man's land. And that's what aging out. And it's really just leaving the services of the government. What's sad is over 70% will actually end up in another government program, either on welfare, they'll end up in prison, uh, they'll end up in, in mental institutions. And so we've got to start standing up for these kids between 14 and 18 so they don't become a statistic when they age out. That's very, very helpful. Um, I know I've seen statistics talking about how Foster care, unfortunately, is a pipeline into human trafficking, especially for vulnerable teenage girls aging out and then being very vulnerable and susceptible to to traffickers. I want to go back to something you were talking about, which I personally, I've been working on child welfare in some capacity for almost a decade, and I've seen a shift in the past decade to caring more about birth mothers. And I really appreciate that because I I think sometimes in the Christian world, we can paint adoption as this beautiful thing, sunshine, roses. Um, While it is a beautiful thing, adoption always starts with loss. And I I have seen um, a helpful shift to acknowledge both the joy and the sorrow. And one of those shifts, I think, has been of work like yours of highlighting the importance and the dignity of birth mothers. So I would love for you to say more about how Lifeline stepped more into that space and kind of How and why that is so important for the church to understand that third component in adoption, that it's not just an adoptee and the adoptive parents, but also that birth family as well. Yeah. So by God's grace, 40 years ago when we were founded, our founders really got that. I mean, we we grew out of the Crisis Pregnancy Center Network movement, and their heart was, how do we care for these women in crisis pregnancies? I think why it's just so important and so vital is because— When you talk about being pro-life, we're pro-human flourishing, and we allowed the abortion industry to co-opt the idea of being pro-woman. You know, when you really think about abortion, you have a woman that's hurting. You have a woman that has, and believe it or not, her pregnancy probably doesn't make the top 10 of the issues that she's Mm -hmm. dealing with. You take the abortion industry says we're pro-woman. All they're going to do is take the life of a child, and the woman walks right back out of that clinic with all the problems that she had when she walked in. When the church comes along and we say, hey, let's help you with this life, Mm -hmm. right? If for no other reason, it gives us an excuse to love on her and to care for her and to help her walk through all of the issues that she's going through. And so it's us stepping into her messy. It's us stepping into her hurt and her pain. Chelsea, I think what you said at the very beginning of your question that I— I really applaud the church because I feel like even what's changed over the last 15 plus years I've been in this, I feel like the church, we were really so infatuated with the idea of comfort Mm -hmm. that we would help as long as we could help for a short term. But if it was going to take longer than a short term or if it was going to cost us our comfort, we were reticent. And I think, unfortunately, American Christianity got into this whole idea of comfort And we don't like the prosperity gospel, but if we're honest, 
personally, we did kind of believe, you know, within our own hearts, at least a little bit of it when we said, oh, we need comfort, we need Mm -hmm. peace. And the truth of the matter is we were never promised comfort. We were never promised peace. Actually, we were promised suffering. We were promised pain and hurt. True joy and true fulfillment comes with Christ Jesus comes. And so as I really feel like the church has matured in this of stepping into others' discomfort, stepping into others' pain, and realizing that when you do, you're inviting it on yourself. And I think that's what why we've been reticent to step in with women, because they're going through pain. They're going through hurt. They're going through loss. They're going through trauma. Hurt people hurt people. And we're so afraid to be hurt. And a lot of times, these birth mothers, they've been so hurt. Only way they know to react is to hurt, is to lash out. And I just think, oh, by God's grace and by the preaching of the gospel and the preaching of the word, we've seen men and women realize we've got to step into sorrow. We've got to step into suffering. I also think by God's grace, as we start to see a day where maybe Roe versus Wade could be overturned, or at the very least, we'll see it be restricted a bit in states, it's the time that the church goes, well, what now? Mm-hmm. What are we going to do now? Because there's still going to be pregnant women. There's still going to be hurt. There's still going to be pain. But what will our talking points be once our policy and our politics have hit the mark? We still got to walk life with these women. And I think the church is waking up and realizing, hey, we need to care and we need to step into the space. So so let's stay on that for a minute. Like I mentioned at the beginning, we were both at the Supreme Court this morning for the, the Texas heartbeat uh, bill. But in a month, there will be oral arguments for um, a case called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, um, which the RLC uh, has submitted an amicus brief asking the court to overturn Roe. Um, and I know many of our, our partners are hopeful for that as well. Um, and obviously, we haven't heard oral arguments. We don't know what's going to happen yet. But We do know that if the best case outcome happened, abortions would not stop the very next day. Like you said, there will still be, you know, it will likely go back to the states and percolate there. So so we know abortions will still happen. Mm -hmm. And um, like you said, the church needs to be ready. So what are kind of a two-part question? Number one, and I feel like you've answered this throughout the interview, but to ask it very specifically, what are ways right now the church needs to be preparing for even more opportunities to serve, and kind of what's the next um, frontier? What are some opportunities you're excited to invite the church into different ways to serve Mm -hmm. um, vulnerable communities throughout the U.S.? Yeah. Well, obviously, like the ERLC, Lifeline is so committed to seeing Roe versus Wade overturned. And it's a day that whoever would have thought that we could potentially be this close to seeing something like this happen. But to what you said, Chelsea, you'd take a state like New York State. The day if if Roe versus Wade was overturned with the Dobb case, New York would actually have one of the most aggressive abortion laws that would instantly allow abortion on demand up to the point of live birth. So you're still going to have states where abortion is not just readily available, but in some ways uh, it, it's, it's yeah. extreme and expanded. So I think we've got to be ready to stand up. The other thing we have to realize is even in a COVID world, we have a very mobile society, right? And so women can jump state borders to go somewhere else. So as the church, we really have got to take notice of these women, mm-hmm. right? And I know for listeners, there are some who look at this issue and they they can't see past the act and the sin. And they look at this 
woman and they say, but look at the choices that she's made and, you know, look at what she's done. But we fail to see that the same choices and the same way we see her is the way we're seen in our sin. But thanks be to God that while we were still sinners, Christ came and he died for us, right? While our even puny acts of righteousness were but filthy rags, Christ came and he was a propitiation for us. We have got to, in our churches, seek those that are hurting, seek those that are, are neglected. I think we've got to reach out to these women with the love and the compassion, the care of Christ. You know, I, I think all the way through Jesus's ministry, over and over, never failed to preach the kingdom, mm-hmm. never failed to preach about sin and the effects of sin, but he first touched and reached out and loved and cared for as he was preaching about sin and the gospel. And so we've got to love these women and reach out. We've got to pull them into the doors of our church and love on them and care for them with compassion, help them to see that we're going to be there. And again, I guess as succinctly as I can say, if the church would be as powerful as we have been at pro-life rallies and as we have been showing up for candidates that are voting life on a ticket, if we would show up even exponentially harder on the other side of the hospital postpartum with our arms open wide to welcome a mom and a child, then we could systemically show that by our actions and by the way we live our lives that we are radically pro-life. And that's the day that I hope for when the church literally is lined up at hospitals going, you're a single mom, do you need help? We want to help you. And then kind of something we haven't said but I think it's so important. And of course, I grew up in the true love waits generation. We've got to teach abstinence again. Mm -hmm. And there are people that say, well, abstinence is a bygone of of bygone days. It's not. And we have to start teaching it. And moms and dads, we got to start teaching our kids about sex. We've got to teach them that it is God's beautiful design for a man and a woman who are married in a commitment and a covenant to each other. But just like a, a beautiful fire in a fireplace, it's meant to be in the covenant of marriage. And if we're not teaching our own children, our own homes this, how will we ever affect the world with abstinence? We've got to teach mm-hmm. abstinence again, and we've we've got to start with our own homes. And so I guess with that, Absence-based education has got to be something we we talk about again. And then we've got to take back our own homes first. Mm-hmm. Moms and dads need to be present in their homes with the Word of God in their laps. And daddies have got to lead in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many women that I talk to that will tell you they, they grew up in a Christian home, but they never one time saw their dad mm-hmm. read the Bible, open it. They talk about their mom, but they never saw their dad participate in family worship or, or, or to open up the Word of God. Our sons and our daughters desperately need dads to step up, to show integrity, and to start teaching their kids. It's a good word. Come on. I love <laughs> it. So uh, my final question for you, um, which this has just been such a good conversation. Thank you for your time. Um, you wrote a book entitled Image Bearers. Why did you write that book, and what takeaways do you hope Christians will take from it? So a lot of the themes in that book are really the things we've been talking about mm-hmm. now, which is how do we shift from being only pro-birth to mm-hmm. really being pro-life. And a lot of what it looks like is what is the gospel? And, and I, God was really stirring on our heart. And I say our, Dr. Rick on our team, He's my fantastic. heart. I love, yeah. love Dr. Rick. <laughs> he is the Christian Dr. Phil. Uh, so you have Dr. Rick and then you have, I mean, even my wife. And we were just praying how can we help the church see 
that this is a gospel issue. This isn't a ju- just a justice issue. This is really a gospel and a justice combined issue. And so the book is a lot about where our roots come from on the, the life side, why we believe in life, why we believe that life is special, and why we believe that life needs to be defended. But then also, you know, the first several chapters talk about in the womb, but then most of the book talks about out of the womb. So if we believe that life is is unique, if we believe that life is special and worthy to be advocated for, it's going to change the way we lead our families. It's going to change the way we think about sexuality and gender. It's going to change the way we see race and culture. It's going to change the way that we see women's issues. It's going to change the way that we see women who have been abused, abandoned, and neglected. It's going to change the way we look at euthanasia. It's going to change all the ways that we look at everything. And so that doesn't mean, and and, and there's a nuance there, that we don't look at politics in that lens, but it means that we've got to first look at the Word and what does God's Word say about that. And so that's a really brief overview of saying how does the life issue infuse the way we think and the way we live, realizing that really the life issue is all a part of the Great Commission. You know, we can't go and make disciples of a generation that's never born. Mm-hmm. And so our our opportunity is we have a generation that's born that we are to go and make disciples of. And so what does that look like? And how do we flesh that out? And what does that look like in our homes? Well, I think that's an excellent uh, place to end today's episode. And Herbie, thank you so much. Um, again, on a professional note, on a personal note, we are so grateful for you and for Lifeline and for your time. Um, we will drop a link to your book in the show notes, as well as all the places that people can stay up to date with you and your work. And thanks for joining. Oh, Chelsea, it's a privilege. You do great work and uh, so grateful for you and holding the line here in D.C. with the ERLC. Thank you. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. If you enjoyed today's show, send a link to this podcast to a friend or family member in your community. Be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review to help others find the show. Resources from today's episode are available in the show notes and at ERLC.com. And in addition to listening to Capital Conversations, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and culture. The ERLC podcast is our flagship show and airs every Friday. Lindsay and Brent give a rundown of what the ERLC has been working on that week, including updates on our work in Washington, D.C. Search for The Digital Public Square and The ERLC Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we look forward to being back together with you next time. 